in an article he posted just this past Wednesday. Blogger Tim Chalice wrote the following regarding the cause of death of his 20-year-old son last November. It took nearly six months, but the Jefferson County Coroner's Office finally determined the cause of Nick's death and sent us an autopsy report. It was a very long wait for a crucial piece of information. And while it was very difficult to receive the report, we were glad to finally know. We couldn't bring ourselves to read it, so we took a quick photo of each page and sent it to a doctor friend. He read the report thoroughly and explained what we needed to know. Essentially, the autopsy led to a diagnosis of presumed cardiac dysrhythmia of uncertain etiology. In other words, for causes that remain unknown, Nick's heart very suddenly and unexpectedly slipped into an unsustainable rhythm, which in turn led to full cardiac arrest. This is a presumed diagnosis, which is the best they can do in such cases. While the cause is unknown, it is possible that it will be determined as we consult with a geneticist in the weeks to come. Genetic testing may or may not give us clarity about what caused Nick's heart to fail. And now we know, he says, now we know that the heart of an otherwise healthy young man can just stop. We wouldn't have imagined The day we received the report was one of the hardest we've had since he died. Yet there was also some comfort in it. It was comforting in the sense that he did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. It was comforting in the sense that the people who tried to save him did all they could since without specialized equipment there was little that could be done to save him once he collapsed. And it was comforting in the sense that it was so clearly an act of providence in which the Lord just took him. And then he said this, all we can do is bow the knee. And bowing the knee is proper. It's a proper response because Christ is and has all authority over death, which our text is going to affirm for us once again tonight. And that should be a great comfort to us because as I mentioned back in um, April, it was, you know, it doesn't matter what we eat or exercise uh, or what diet we follow or gym we belong to or how many miles we walk or run or bike or whether we follow all the protocols or wear three masks or take all three vaccines or isolate ourselves. The bottom line is death cannot be avoided. It is something we all face and that's because God being holy and righteous and just determined death to be an inescapable reality and penalty for sin. Question 84, is again, that I mentioned back in April of the larger catechism, reminds us that death being threatened as the wages of sin, it is appointed unto all men once to die, for all have sinned. Again, it's an inescapable reality. But fortunately for us, the story does not end there. For while death is certain, the fear of it does not have to be for those who are in Christ. Our outline tonight of this passage that I just read looks like this. We're going to look at the frailty of life, the display of faith, and then the reality of death. The frailty of life, 
the display of faith, and the reality of death. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, would you, by your Spirit, please grant power to the preaching of your word. Grant us, by your Spirit, the ability to appraise and apprehend your truth. And also, by your Spirit, would you awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us, and then please refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel this evening. As always, I am weak and needy for this task, and so I would ask I would ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something for you this evening. Help me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and his church. I ask these things. Amen. Well, again, we're going to be in verses 40 to 56, and we'll pick up first in verse 40 with the frailty of life. Our passage begins, and Christ is returning to the other side of the lake from which he had come earlier, he and the disciples with him. And when he arrives, he gets a vastly different uh, welcome. Uh, He gets a welcome from those who desire to see him. If you remember, when he left the garrisons, they were forcing him out of town. So he's left those who were forcing him away and don't want anything to do with him and coming and being received by those who desire to see him. Uh, and there's so many that it's, it's, very, uh, it's almost impossible to move without touching someone else. But even so, the, the crowd kind of moves together like an amoeba. And one of those who has come to see him is a man by the name of Jarius. And Jarius is a very devout, God-fearing Jew, and he's very prominent within the synagogue as well as within the community. Because what Jarius does is he plans worship, right? Let's think of Aaron, right? He plans their liturgy. He chooses the psalms that they're going to sing. He chooses the passages that are going to be read. He chooses, uh, he actually chose who was going to read and who was going to explain the scriptures. But Jarius as prominent as he was and as a central figure in the synagogue as he was, as, as godly a man as he was, he was in the midst of a storm. Right? He wasn't immune from the storms of life that we talked about last week. And his storm is, is, rather, is rather large. Actually, he's horrified by it. Because his 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, is on the verge of death. And as you can imagine, Jarius is in agony because he can't do anything about it. He wants to. He sees her in the shape that she's in, and he realizes as he's watching her suffer that he cannot do anything to take away her pain. And so everything that he, it's just incomprehensible what he is going through emotionally. The thought of not seeing her face again the thought of not hearing her laugh, the thought of not seeing her grow up and become the godly woman that he desired her to be and and to be a godly wife and a godly mother was not going to happen. And it was unbearable. So he came looking for Jesus. But he isn't the only one in the midst of a storm. As we said last week, we all go through our storms. But 
There was a woman there who, in verse 43, were introduced to as a woman whose storm had developed and had approached her and come overhead and then stalled out, and it had been stalled for 12 years. She was being battered. She had been battered and bruised by this storm for as long as Jarius' daughter had been alive. She had some type of uterine distress, and it manifested itself in this constant flow of blood. And so you can imagine at the time that, based on the time that that constant flow left her incapacitated physically, it, let her, it left her drained emotionally and strained physically, and then also isolated socially as well as ostracized and restricted spiritually. Because you remember from our study of Leviticus that this flow made her unclean. And everybody knew the shape that she was in because she had spent every dime that she had made over the course of her lifetime paying doctors to try to figure out what was wrong. And they never found a cure. Now, different though these circumstances might be, both of these individuals, Jarius and the woman, show us the frailty of life. Right? They exhibit that frailty because that frailty is common to man. The frailty is common to all of us because we all live within a dark and, and, and broken and fallen world. So none of us are immune from it. We're all physically weak. We're all easily broken. We've been reminded of that. We were reminded of that on Thursday, right, when John went down. But not only are our our lives frail, our lives are fleeting. They're going by at breakneck speed. And none of us are guaranteed a long life We're not guaranteed a pain-free life, an illness-free life, a disease-free life, an accident-free life, a disability-free life. But fortunately, our hope is not in our physical health. Our hope is not in our physical well-being. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is not even in the longevity of our life. Our hope is in Him because He alone has all authority. He is authoritative and he has all authority, not only sickness over sickness and disease, but over creation, over sin, over spiritual forces of evil, over life, and over death. We've been learning that. Right? This isn't no, you're saying this sounds familiar. Yes. Luke is saying this over and over. And over again, because we need to be reminded over and over and over again. And as we look to the Lord Jesus, we're given the grace and the strength and the stamina that we need to endure whatever our physical circumstances might be. The key is coming to the realization that while we can make certain decisions on a daily basis, Um, and to some extent uh, affect our quality of life 
There are aspects of our lives, there are aspects of our health and mortality that are completely out of our control. Our diet and our exercise and our moderation of enjoying those wonderful gifts that God has given us are all good habits to, de- to develop and follow. We may even reduce our risk-taking, right, and keep those things to a minimum, but we're not guaranteed prolonged health and life. And our hope is not in ourselves. In the words of question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, it says our only hope in life and in death is that we are not our own but belong body and soul both in life and death to our Savior, our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all our sins. His precious blood has set us free from all the power of the devil and preserves us. And it does so in such a way, the catechism says, that without the will of our Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our heads and indeed all must work together for our salvation. We're in His hands. And we too must bow the knee. We're called to bow the knee and trust and rest in the providential work of God who is conforming those He has called into the image of His Son. And He's he's doing that as He works all things together for our good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And He will use whatever means necessary to bring that about, even if it hurts a little. It's that important to Him but we are in good hands in the midst of this frailty of life. But this, there's more to this than just the frailty of life. We also see the display of faith. And we see the display of faith in both of these individuals. In Jairus's case, this desperation that he's feeling has led him to the place where he believes he only has one option. He doesn't go looking to the law. He doesn't go looking to his spiritual leader friends He casts aside all his care and all of his concern for the potential consequences and blowback of seeking help from the one the religious establishment has labeled an enemy. He goes to Jesus and falls at his feet and begs him for help. Begs him to heal his daughter. Come to my house heal my daughter. The one who had authority in, in the synagogue and in the community submits himself to a greater authority, despite all the cost involved. He himself was personally helpless. He could not heal his daughter. He could not heal or save her her life. And so he goes to the only one, the only one he knew could do what he could not do for her. And Jesus responded, let's go. I'm going to go to your house. And before they can get too far down the road, then we have, we have the woman, and she interrupts, she stops him. The, the desperation leads her to this place where she only had one option. In her mind, all she had to do was touch the hem of his garment. He didn't need to speak to her, he didn't need to see her, and because she believed that that was all that she needed to do, 
because there were so many people, right, she had to, she could do it. She, she knew that she could do it in such a way where no one would notice, not even Jesus. So she, again, she set aside all of her concerns. She set aside all the potential consequences, all the blowback that she would experience of being in public, of of coming into contact with other people that would have left them unclean too. She set aside all of her concern, and despite the cost, she worked her way through the crowd, and she comes up from behind, and she reaches out, and she touches the hem of his garment. And immediately, the blood dried up. Healed. She was personally helpless. She could not, she had tried, she could not heal herself, she could not save herself. She went to the only one who could do for her what she could not do for herself. She went to Jesus. But the display doesn't stop there. Right, the story goes on. As far as the woman was concerned, Jesus wasn't going to let her simply touch the hem of his garment and then sneak off. So he asks the question. Right? He doesn't want her to be anonymous. And he asks the question, who touched me? And you can hear Peter, right? Peter saying, what do you mean who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? There are so many people around. How did you even know? And no one owns it, right? Although they probably all could have, well, I just touched your shoulder, but he, right? Nobody owns it. So he changes his question to a statement. No, somebody touched me. I know it. I felt it. Power left from me. But what he wasn't doing was he wasn't really trying to identify who touched him. He knew who touched him. He was drawing her out. He wanted her to identify herself. He did what the father did in the garden. Remember that? Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden and God comes, where are you? He knew where they were, but what was he doing? Drawing them out. He wanted them to own and acknowledge and confess their sin. Here, on this day, he knows who touched him, but he calls out, who touched me? He's drawing her out because he wants her to own and acknowledge and profess her faith. He wasn't going to, he wanted to hear it, he wanted others to hear it, we'll get to that in a minute, but he wanted others to hear it. He wasn't going to let her hide her light under a bed. Look at verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It wasn't easy, but she did it, right? It was the last thing that she wanted to do. She wanted to slink in and slink, slink out, thought she had a plan, and it thwarted. He calls her out, and with this mixture of amazement, right? It's been 12 years, and it's gone. So she's amazed on one, on one side. 
you know, the, the, the fear is actually wonder and awe. But then there's also this fear. What's everybody going to say? Because I shouldn't be around everybody. And what's Jesus going to do? Because I've touched him without his permission. And so she's got this mixture of emotions. And yet she comes out of hiding and she admits it. I did. I'm the one. And she lets everybody know also that the bleeding has stopped. And notice what Jesus does. He responds to her profession of faith. She publicly declared her faith and he returns a public declaration. It's public declaration for public declaration. Having professed her faith, he now publicly declares her wholeness. He publicly declares her wholeness both physically and spiritually. The physical, of course, pointing to the spiritual. But what's interesting here is, though it doesn't show up in our English translation, it looks different in our English translations. In the original language, he says the same thing to her that he did to uh, the prostitute. Exactly. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, Jesus is saying, your faith is the instrument through which you have not only been healed of your bleeding, not only been healed physically, not only been restored to health physically, but through faith you have been forgiven of your sin and reconciled to the Father. You're now at peace with the Lord. Now go and walk in that peace. You've been saved. Now, what about Jairus? Remember, Jairus has been there all along. We can't forget about him, right? He is is trying to bring Jesus along to the house. They need to get there to save his daughter. So he's standing right there, and he's seeing all this go on. And let's be honest, right now, as far as Jairus is concerned, everything is about Jairus and his daughter. So what this woman is doing is distracting Jesus It's an interruption that needs to be put to the side so they can get to where they need to go. And so when Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? Jairus is probably thinking the same thing that Peter is. What do you mean, who touched you? We have got to go. And may have even been speaking out loud right? We've got to get to my house, Jesus. We can't hold out any longer. Verse 49 tells us he's been actively trying to move Jesus along. But verse 49 also lets us know that the time it took to interact with the woman made the difference between Jesus getting there on time and being late, at least as far as the servant is concerned, because the servant comes with the message, Jairus, your daughter has died, so leave Jesus alone. He doesn't need to come to the house anymore. There's no need. And we can imagine those emotions washing over Jairus, right? The grief from the death. And again, let's be honest, but the anger at the woman. This is your fault that my daughter is dead. And at that moment, before the emotions get the best of him, Jesus speaks, don't Don't be afraid, only believe, and she will be well. 
And what he says lets us know something very interesting. And I, I think of all the people, right, Jesus didn't want her hiding, her light to be hidden underneath the bed. It needed to be evident for all to see. Of all the people that needed to see her light at that moment was actually Jairus. He needed her to profess her faith. He needed her to give her testimony of being healed. He needed that to make the rest of the trip. He needed that to, as Jesus said, believe. He's heard this, this terrible news and he needed that faith of another, the profession of that faith and, and to hear her testimony to encourage him to trust Christ even more than he already had to, because of the news that he had just received. Brothers and sisters, this story communicates two or three things for us at, at this point in terms of faith. And the first is the same that we learned in chapter 7 with the son uh, that was raised in name. The faith that Christ fosters is a humble faith. Right? It's a humble faith that acknowledges our neediness and our inability. Both of these individuals had to do that. It's a humble faith that acknowledges and trusts not that Christ will heal, but that Christ can heal because he alone possesses all authority over life and death in the physical and spiritual realms. It's a faith, it's a humble faith that trusts in his word that is sufficient and powerful. It's a faith, a humble faith that rests in God's timing. Timing in this story, it's not accidental. It's a humble faith that acknowledges that we are in need of the saving work of the Lord Jesus because only Christ can deliver us from our sin, only Christ can deliver us from our death, which is the spiritual reality to which this story points. But secondly, this story is also a perfect example of the fact that our faith is to be a public declaration. We are to publicly declare. It's not something that we keep secret. It's not something that we hide and, and keep to ourselves. It's not simply between us and God. It's, it's to be out there. Jesus couldn't be more clear than he was in Matthew chapter 10. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is meant to be declared. And it's also, as I've already said a couple times, a perfect example of why it's important not to hide our light, but to let it shine before all men. Proclaiming the truth of the gospel, pro proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and what God has done for us in Christ is meant to be shared and the Lord will use that to draw others to himself. The Lord will use that to comfort others who are in, their, in the midst of their own storms. Right? We, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God, uh, Paul 
says that God the Father of mercy and all comfort comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Right? The woman is doing that and she doesn't even know it. She wanted to hide. She wanted to slink off. And yet she's drawn out by, by the Lord and she professes her faith and she declares what God has done and in the process has gotten Jairus through to get to the house. We can be used by the Lord in the same way. Frailty of life, display of, de- uh, display of faith, and finally the reality of death. Jesus and Jairus and the rest finally get to the house. The mourners are already present as, we've, we, as we talked at, with the story at Nain. Uh, they've been, some of them have been hired. Uh, they're already weeping and, and, and the gnashing of teeth is going on. And um, they've even begun preparing for the funeral, because it's going to happen that day. And so it's all in process. And in the midst of that weeping and mourning, Jesus says, don't weep. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And as you can imagine, there, there may have been a collective gasp. Many, many may have been shaking their heads and rolling their eyes as they began to mockingly laugh at his ridiculous statement. Right? She is obviously dead, and to them, he is obviously one of those people that fails to realize that it's better to say nothing at all than to say something stupid in an, in, in an attempt to comfort someone. But they couldn't have been more wrong. There are three similarities between the story and the story of the young man in Nain. First, she was dead. There's, there's no debate, and he knew it. But again, he had authority over death. As a matter of fact, he would eventually fully and finally defeat death on the cross. But on this day, not only did he grab her hand, right? In Nain, he just touched the cart. And that was enough Right? That was enough to be unclean. He grabs this young girl's hand. God in flesh. And rather than become unclean, he cleanses her. And he does more than just cleanse her. He raises her from the dead. With a word. Arise. He couldn't be corrupted or contaminated by death. And so with no pomp or no circumstance instantaneously brings her back. Secondly, when Jesus spoke and said, arise to the girl, notice it says that the girl's body was reunited with her soul. And so again, we have this example and and we see that Christ's power extends over the visible and invisible, over uh, the physical and the spiritual, over uh, the body and the soul, life and death and creation and recreation. And then Third, the girl's death, like the boy's, was only temporarily overcome. It was only temporarily overcome. We know that the young lady eventually died. Why? Because as we've said, all men die. So because he did not at that moment give her a glorified body and he had not been raised from the dead, the story points to our need and his provision 
through his own resurrection that was to come. He alone has the power to save us from our sin. He alone has the power to resurrect spiritually, to raise those who are spiritually dead to a place of spiritual life through faith in Him, through faith in His death and resurrection. He alone has the power to physically resurrect through that same faith. Through the power of His crucifixion, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And through the power of His resurrection in which He was raised in a glorified body, we have the hope of eternal life. And for those who look to Christ, right, our death is not final. It's a reality, but it's not final. And the lack of finality is just as real. We read question 84, the larger catechism as we began. Now listen to question 85. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. And even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, Yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory when, uh, which they then enter upon. Brothers and sisters, we need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged because our hope is not in the quality of our physical health. It's not in the longevity of our lives. Our hope is not in whether He heals us. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that which is yet eternal. And that is what, it, what is yet to come because this story, as this story reminds us, on that day when Christ returns, we will be healed fully and finally, completely, totally, and we will be given glorious immortal bodies. And as we've also already said, we will not only not only will Christ bring us to himself, but he is he is going to bring us back to one another. As Pastor Riken had said, and so until then, we take heart. We need to th- remember 2 Corinthians 5.8 and, and Philippians 1.23 and Revelation uh, chapters 4 to 6 because they all tell us that those who, when, when those who are looking to Christ die and they go to heaven, they do not go into a soul sleep and remain unconscious until Christ returns. Nor is the time used to purge them fully and finally of their sin, nor are we forever separated from our bodies. Now, God's Word tells us specifically when we die, our souls are freed from our sin and from the presence of sin, and we are immediately in the presence of the Lord in heaven, conscious and aware of our presence with Him. And we await the day when our souls will be united to our glorified bodies. Death is, not, death is not final. Heaven is not final either. I'll let you parents deal with that with your kids. But heaven is not final either because the new heavens and new earth, they are final. And they It is there that we will dwell with the Lord. It is there that He will dwell among us. It is there that we will eat and drink with Him. It is there that we will be for eternity. Therefore, we should continually proclaim, Come, Lord Jesus.
that is our hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.